Amen. Thank you, Rachel, for reading Matthew chapter 5 for us. Why don't you go ahead and find your Bible and turn there to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 5 this morning, and um, I'm looking forward to sharing God's Word with you. I do want to also um, just give my plug for what's happening this afternoon. If you're available, um, I encourage you to spend, to spend this day investing in... Uh, just some training and some knowledge on how to share the gospel in everyday conversation. And what a challenge that was from Ryan. Just the, uh, the reality that people are willing to have conversations. I think that's a significant part there. They're willing to have dialogue back and forth. So we're not looking for an opportunity to, to, to do what I'm going to do here in just a few minutes. Understand what you do in your neighborhood or in your cubicle at work or or at school, whatever it is, on your team. That's very different than what I'm going to do for the next 30 minutes. And that's not just um, our idea about it being different. In reality, the Bible uses different terms for that. So I'm going to preach the word here in just a minute, and we are to preach the gospel. But we do it in a different way in our lives. And so I encourage you to, uh, to spend that time today um, dealing with how to, how to have conversations about Jesus. I'm sure I'm glad somebody had a conversation with me about Christ. Do you remember a conversation you had? I trust that uh, that's a precious memory in your heart, um, as I'm sure that it is. So I also want to let you be aware of something that's happening next Sunday. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month. That's the, that's the first Focus Sunday. So during the Focus Hour next week, we'll all be together. We'll be celebrating communion together. Um, both services come together during the Focus Hour next week. We'll be celebrating communion. We'll also be talking about our, our facility needs and, and how those have been addressed in the future. So you need to be here next Sunday for, for that discussion. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 5, and I appreciate Rachel reading 21 to 26, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. But I want to just draw your attention to verse number 17 first. I think verse number 17 is, um, is Jesus now is, is kicking into his sermon. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and I've told you I think this is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever walk on the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And at verse number 17, he kind of kicks it into high gear here and now is going to develop an, uh, the concepts that he's trying to bring to the, the, the ears of his listeners. And he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What we have here is Jesus dealing with a problem. And the problem is that man had emptied the law of its meaning. And he needed to address that. Now, when you think of the word empty, rarely is that a good thing. An empty gas tank, no good, right? An empty brain, okay, that's a problem. But in my house, maybe like yours when you were growing up, there was one thing that, that just seemed to bring my mom's like anger to the surface. And that was this thing. Anybody? I see heads already shaking, okay? I can hear my mom now walking into the kitchen. I'm 10, 11 years old. She's going to bake a cake or something, and she opens the refrigerator, all right? And what does she say? Who put the empty milk container back into the refrigerator, right? 
right? Was, it, was anybody else hear those lines when you were a kid? All the time. I don't know why it is, okay? I don't, why do we do that? I've, I've read online. I was interested. I'm, I saw Google search. Why do we leave an empty milk container in the refrigerator? All kinds of theories, okay? All kinds of theories. Me, I just think it's laziness, it's easier to just do this than to walk over to the trash and do this. I just think it's laziness, okay? But empty things, like an empty milk container or empty water container, as this one is, um, can be absolutely worthless. And what Jesus is going to do for us is he's going to fill back in what the law or what the word or what the revelation was meant to hold. Scripture says here that he fulfilled the law. Now that means a lot of things. It means that he lived it perfectly, but it's more than that. Jesus didn't just land on the earth and and live out a perfect life and then sort of zap back up to heaven. That's not what he did. He taught and he, he interacted with people because he, tried, he, was, he was working to fill back in the law with its meaning. And this is very important for us to understand. Now I want to say another word about, we've talked about fulfilling, but I want to say a word about the law. Now three sort of synonymous words would be law, word, and revelation. And you can use these words in exchange for one another. See, we hear law and we immediately kind of bristle because man doesn't like law. Man is not crazy about law. As a matter of fact, Romans 8, and I think I have this for the screen if you put it up on the screen for us. Romans 8 tells us something interesting about us, about human beings, about you before you were in Christ. And now if you will let your flesh take over. And that is that the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. Hostile. See, humans don't only, we not only don't like law, we don't like law givers. We got a problem with laws, speed limits, ah, 55, 70, that's ridiculous. I could drive faster here. It's not just that we don't like law. We don't like law givers. How dare somebody tell me what to do, right? Who are they to tell me i got to wear a seatbelt? A helmet? It's my head. I can smash it on the ground if I want to, right? We don't like law givers. It's our nature. It's the fleshly way of man. We don't like law, and we don't like law givers. So what man does in his hate for law is he attempts to empty it of its meaning. He tries to empty law of its meaning. And Jesus is going to address that today in our passage. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had done a lot of things, a lot of sort of mental gymnastics, a lot of spiritual gymnastics to empty the law of its meaning. Or you could say, empty the word of its meaning, or you could say, empty the revelation of God of its meaning. Now, why am I taking the time to to stress that? Because the law, as we have it here in God's word, 
is simply reflecting for us the character of God. If you want to know what God is like, read the law. If you want to know what God is like, read the word. If you want to know what God is like, read his revelation where he has revealed his character. So that's why it's so dangerous and so detrimental for man to empty the law of its meaning. Because in, the, in our process of emptying the law of its meaning and dumping out the meaning, we are now taken away from the character of God. And now man and women and children, they can't see the character of God because the law of God is emptied of its meaning. Now let's be careful because there is a contemporary form of this. There, this isn't just the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Man has, mankind, sinful men, have always done this. This was, this was the original intent of Satan. When he said, has God really said to Eve? Remember that? And in contemporary ways, here's how it happens now. You, you'll hear it. You recognize it. There, there are those today who are attempting to empty God's word of its meaning by telling us, by trying to convince us that this isn't really the word of God. This isn't really God's inspired word. It's, oh, it's, it's to be treasured, it's to be admired, but really there are people today, there are people in churches today, there are people who claim to be, to claim to be followers of Christ who will tell us that this is no more than the reflection of the thoughts of the day when it was written. And it reveals the bias of mankind from first century A.D., and that we, we, what we need to do is understand what God is really trying to communicate to us. No, no, no. We have the word of God and it reveals his character. There's always been an effort to attack the word of God and to empty it of its meaning. And an empty container is worthless. It does us no good. So let's go to our passage again. What I want us to see today, and, and we're going to see this kind of laid out here for the next couple of weeks, is a higher righteousness. See, God, the Lord Jesus, is going to call us to a higher righteousness. Now, it's going to appear at first that the Pharisees have attempted to, to elevate themselves to a higher point. But in reality... What we're going to see here in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is returning the law of God to its higher righteousness. Why? Why? Why is it so important for us to understand what God requires of us? Because the, the word of God is given for several reasons. One of which is to reveal for us or reflect for us the character of God. But it's also to reveal to us the sinfulness of man. This is a bit of a repeat from last week, a review from last week. But one of the purposes of the law of God is to show us that we need a Savior. Is to demonstrate us, to us that we need a Savior. And if you know Jesus as your Savior today, you and I, we need to also understand the higher righteousness that God calls us to because it reveals to us how far we were from God. How far we were from God. 
just this week on my Twitter feed, I saw this quote from Tim Keller, and I thought, how fitting, how fitting for where we are right now. Tim Keller, he's a, he's a pastor in New York City, and he said this, if you have a small view of sin, God's grace will be small to you. Great truth. Great truth. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 7. He said, the one who is forgiven much loves much. So one of the purposes for us to study the, the study of God's word is to understand our sinfulness so that we are moved in worship. And when you sing the songs that we just sang about the reckless love of God, that you will pour out in love for Jesus, your Savior, because he rescued you, because righteousness was high. It was high. The demand on, on, on mankind was absolute perfection. We see it in the end of Matthew chapter 5. You can look at it there. The last verse of chapter 5, Jesus says, the standard is perfection. That's what is required of us. So what Jesus is going to do is he's now going to fill the law back in with its meaning. So let's go to verse number 21. Higher righteous number one. Highest righteous maybe, but higher righteous number one is the concept that life is sacred as Jesus is going to talk about murder. Look what he says in verse number 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, man's marker, man's marker is, and you hear people say this, well, I'm not a murderer. Matter of fact, one time I entered into a gospel conversation with somebody and I asked them, one of the, one of the questions that we were in our conversation was I asked them if they've ever, they are aware of any sin that they've ever committed. Now, I want you to know that wasn't like my first question, okay? It was a conversation, an ongoing conversation for months now, for months, back and forth about the gospel. And I said to the man, so have you ever sinned? Here's what he said. Well, I've never murdered anybody. Like, that is the standard, okay? Oh, not a murderer? Well, then you're fine, right? That's kind of man's marker. And that is where the Pharisees had gone in this first area of a higher righteousness that Jesus is going to address. Murder. Now, it's funny. Murder is probably, in our minds, the worst of all crimes, right? But it's also the universally most practiced sin of man. Now, you should be like, whoa, whoa, what are you saying? When we read through what Jesus has to say, we're going to understand that this category of sin that Jesus is going to describe is the one that mankind struggles with the most. It's the worst of all sins, murder, but it's probably the one that haunts you down most often. How in the world could I say that? We'll read the next verse. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But Jesus says, but I say to you, 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, first question I have is, is Jesus kind of like exaggerating here to make a point? Is he, just, is he just sort of being, you know, almost contentious? Like, you know, well, murder's bad, but so is anger. I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think you understand that as we go a little further. First of all, a couple of things about murder, okay? Murder was man's first crime. Now, a crime is, is offense against men, against the, against the government, the control of men. And it was man's first crime when Cain murdered Abel. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, thou shalt not murder. It's the first commandment on what's often called the second table of the commandments. The first sort of five deal with, the, with man's relationship with God. Okay, or four if you want to include the honor your father and mother. And the second kind of half, this is the first one. You're not murder. Satan is called a murderer in John chapter 6. Hmm, interesting. God hates murder. In Proverbs chapter 6, the, proverb, the author says that there are six things that God hates, seven that he really, really hates, and one of them is murder. Unforgiven murderers, according to Revelation chapter 21, will not enter into heaven. Hmm. Murder is a big deal. It's a big deal. Murder is the one thing that I would say that Scripture, that the Lord reveals, that is worthy of capital punishment. The government has the authority, in my opinion, from Romans chapter 13, Genesis chapter 9, to institute capital punishment in cases of murder. Now, by the way, you don't. You don't. Careful there. All right? Now, I'll give you some allowance. I'm willing to have a dialogue about about self-defense, but you better be careful there. Okay? You better be careful there. Very, very careful there. The government is given the authority to deal with murderers. And Genesis chapter 9 would say... It is capital punishment. So what Jesus is going to do is is he's going to understand that the Pharisees have kind of done a self-pat because at least they never murdered. But Jesus is going to fill in murder because of this. And here's, here's kind of the main point we need to catch. Murder, a murderer is someone that simply had enough emotion or enough mental insanity to actually follow through on what their heart wanted to do. Think about that. A murder is, I mean, a murder is like an onion, okay? And, and maybe the outer layer of the onion, when you peel that off, that is the taking of a life, murder. But in reality, what murder is, it's just a, it is the, the fulfilled fruit. It's the mature fruit of a heart of anger and a heart of hatred. Many people would follow through on murder. The only reason they don't is they're simply afraid they'll get caught. But the truth is their heart is filled with murderous intent. We all are. This is where Jesus is going to drive us to. He wants us to see that our anger, 
our attitude that, that comes out of us, our feeling of, of, of accursement towards people is a murderous heart. See, what Jesus is going to show for us in verse number 22 is that people are precious. And what we're seeing here is this higher righteousness lived out. We're going to see this higher righteousness that we said the whole Sermon on the Mount is all about. And that is the internal is more important than the external. And that the eternal is more important than the immediate or the temporary. And that man is so bad and that man is so corrupt and that man is so evil that renovation won't fix us. We cannot be renovated. We've got to be regenerated. We've got to be born again because we're so evil. So let's see, let's see how we are all murderers. Doesn't it sound like fun? Let's see how we are all murderers. Now let me say this, um, before, before I go any further on this, I, I'm not suggesting, and I don't think that Jesus was suggesting, as a matter of fact, we must say this. We're not suggesting that anger is as evil as murder. We're not suggesting that. No one should leave here and, st- and think, well, I'm mad at this person, so I might as well kill him because it's the same. No, no, hear me, it's not the same. But it is in the same category of sin. And anger is liable to the judgment of God in the same way that murder is. So let's, let's see it. So Jesus is going to point out three things, okay? He's going to point out three things. Anger, an attitude, and an abusive heart that wishes one to be accursed. And I really want us to evaluate our heart and see, is there this murderous intent in us? Is it there? Because the only fix, the only solution, is the presence of the Spirit of God and our submission to him. Let's start with the word anger. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, Jesus isn't the only one that said this. The apostle John also said this in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 15. 315 of 1 John. Listen to how John said it. He said, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So our feeling, our emotion, our heart intent to our brother is significant because it reveals, it reveals whether we are reflecting the character of God or the character of Satan. So I want you, to, before we go any further, I want you to evaluate your heart. Is, does anger live there? Are you an angry person? Are you quick? Are you quick to anger rather than being slow to anger? And do you maybe even pride yourself and and say, you know, that's just who I am. I'm an emotional person. Listen, I used to give myself that excuse. You know, as I've aged 49 this year, shocking. As I've aged and matured, I, I I see God's spirit taking 
the emotion that's in me, the anger, and he's, he's bringing it in. He's bringing, I, I see it in my life, and I'm thankful for it. And, and you know, I guess it happens to every dad. I, can, I know me and my sisters, we always talk about, boy, our dad sure has mellowed over the years. Has your anger mellowed? Or is it like a raging fire? Look what Jesus has to say about it. He speaks of this anger. Now, this word anger, it it really means, the word anger is, what it actually means is an explosion of emotion. That's what it actually means. Orgizo is the word. And it just means to to explode with, with, with all kinds of emotion. With anger, with threats, it's, it's, this, it's like a dynam- it's like a piece of dynamite that just explodes, all right? You don't even see it happening, you don't see it coming, but boom, there it is. That's what this word is, okay? And, and so what it, what it really indicates is a brooding, a, a simmering that happens, and it's under the surface, and only the, the only person that knows about it is the angry man or woman and the Lord, and it's there, and it can be covered. It can be covered over with nice words and platitudes, and some of us are, are so self-controlled, and, and so we have learned so well to hide the true man that's in us that nobody else even knows how angry we are. It's, it's, you are roaring inside with a fire. And somebody walks up and says, hey, how are you? You're like, hi, how you doing? God bless you. But inside you are filled with rage. That's what this word is. But it doesn't have to be quite that ugly either. But the thing about this first word, anger, when you see it in the context of what Jesus is going to say, is nobody sees it. Nobody sees it. It's you. Just you. You're the only one that's aware of it. But it's there. And for one reason or another, you have learned to hold it in. Now, I'd love to say more about anger because it's a huge issue. All right? It's, it's actually fits of anger. In Galatians chapter 5, it says it is, it's the work of flesh. And it's actually the absolute opposite of being controlled by the Spirit. But I knew we weren't going to have time to talk about it for too long. So tomorrow, in your, in your email box or on your Facebook site, you're going to get a podcast that deals with anger, all right, and some suggestions of how you can deal with this. If this is an issue for you, you need to listen to this podcast, all right? We're going to talk about anger, Pastor Billy and I, and, and how that, what the Bible has to say about that. But what I want to do is I want to move on to what Jesus says next. So he says, if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment, okay? Then he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to to the council. Now, it feels like Jesus is kind of ratcheting it up here a little bit, and he is. He is. What we're seeing now is, is this anger is now going to be expressed. Okay? It's now going to come out of your mouth. Your translation may say the word raka, R-A-C-A. The ESV says that you insult your brother. But literally what it says is raka, R-A-C-A. And we don't really know what that word means. We don't really know what it means. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that was used in the first century. We don't really know what it means. But we know it's an insult, okay? And it likely means you fool, you stupid person, you moron. You don't have a brain in your head is what it actually likely means, okay? So it's when you say to somebody, you're an idiot. What's wrong with you? You're stupid. That's the word raka. 
So what's happening now is this, this, we're going a deeper level now on the onion. All right? We, we took off the murder peel, and you say, well, I'm okay there. And then we, looked at the, we, we now looked at sort of the anger, okay? And you might say, well, I'm okay there. But now we're, we're moving on to this, this insult where you express towards somebody hatred and anger. It's an insult. And, and here's the thing. It, it lives, this, this, this insult lives when we protect the anger. When you hold the anger insult like, ooh, my precious. Lord of the Rings, remember Gollum, whatever his name is, okay? When you, when you hold that anger and you don't take it to Christ, when you don't come to him and deal with it, it's going to smolder and it's going gonna, it's gonna to build up until it comes out. And an expression of insult to somebody around. And then Jesus goes on. So we first have this insult of a brother. And then, it's, then it says, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Hell of fire? Whoa. We were at judgment. Then we went to council. Now we're at hell of fire. What's the deal with that? Just simply calling somebody a fool? I mean, this is, this is an expression we use all the time. You're a fool, man. What's wrong with you? That's not what fool would have meant in Jesus' day. But I'm not taking us off the hook. Actually, I'm going to sink the hook deeper. In Psalm chapter 14, Psalm 14, verse number 1, here's what it says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. In this culture, when Jesus said this, when you look at your brother and you say, you fool, what you are really saying is, I want you in your state to be eternally separated from God in hell. That's what this is. This is accursing somebody. This is saying, I desire for you to go to hell. Now you might say, well, I would, I would never say that. I would never, I would never express that. Well, first of all, many of us might have said that. But Jesus is not as concerned about the external as the internal. How does a person go to hell? Why does a person go to hell? The reason is their sin. The reason is they've never been forgiven before the Lord because of the work of Christ. Folks, we need to recognize If we can live our lives and not care that people are destined for hell, we are revealing this murderous heart. The murderous heart says, I don't care if you're going to hell. I don't care if you're destined for separation from God forever. I really don't care. This is expressing a heart that says, you fool, you godless person, you deserve to be eternally judged by God. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, 
I would rather be accursed than to see my countrymen separated from God. But yet we live our lives, myself included, I'm throwing myself into this basket of seeing the higher righteousness of Christ. We, we often live our lives not really caring. We don't really care about those around us. That they're destined for being separated from God. They're destined for hell and we really don't care. I remember one time talking to an individual and this was an extreme example of this very concept. In his life, he was being ridiculed regularly by people around him because he was a Christian. Because he knew Christ. And he said to me one time, I don't care that those people are going to go to hell. As a matter of fact, I want them to. Think about that. You may not be a murderer. May not have committed murder. But does our heart reflect the preciousness of people? This is what Jesus is driving us to. Man, mankind, we construct, we contrive and construct this little system where we can evaluate ourselves and say, hey, at least I'm not a murderer. I've never killed anybody. But that's not the standard, folks. That's not the standard. The standard is perfection. And that is a heart that is moved with the preciousness of people. Now, I do have another verse I want to throw up on the screen here. It's Romans chapter 5, if you can find that for me. Why, why is it that we hate why is, it that, why is it that our natural tendency is one towards anger? Why is it that when you wrong me, when you cut me off at the, on the interstate or at a, at a red light, that in a second I can flash in anger and actually think, I'm going to run that guy off the road. You ever feel that? Or am I the only one? Why is it that we can know that people are destined to a Christless eternity and not really care, not be moved? The reason is because we are corrupt and guilty before the Lord. Look what Romans chapter 5 has to say to us. It says that as one trespass led to condemnation for all Men, because Adam sinned, we have inherited the guilt of that sin. So you and I are born dead. And because of that sin, it has been handed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. So yes, you did inherit your temper from your father. Yeah, you did. You did inherit from your father before you a corruption. You are guilty before God because of your ancestor Adam. And you are corrupt as a person because of your father before you. Yes. With that, that unrighteousness has been imputed to us is the biblical word for that. It has been given to us. We have inherited it. 
And you might say, man, that is unfair. That's unfair. And in some sense, I would agree with you. In some sense. But look at what Paul says here in Romans 5. As, as, that's really important. Small word, two letters, but very important. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You might say, it's unfair that I have inherited corruption. You might say, it's unfair that I have inherited guilt. And I might say, in a sense, you know what? You're right. Just as it is equally unfair that you, if you are in Christ, have inherited the righteousness of Christ. It may feel unfair, but it is just. It may not feel right in your human mind, but our ways are not God's ways. And when you come to Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you. You have inherited his righteousness. And so what Paul is saying is, just like you inherited guilt and corruption, you can inherit righteousness. That's what this this whole section on anger and abuse and raka and murder is meant to do. To drive us back to the ground where we were last week and say, I need your righteousness, Christ. The abbot. Now I want to finish what Jesus has to say here. There's a bit of a change at verse number 23. Okay? There's a bit of a change. And, and I, want, I want to make sure we deal with that. So it's almost like Jesus right now is, it's, I picture him now kind of pausing, okay? And maybe moving as preachers do because he's saying, okay, I'm going to make another point. All right? So now he says in verse number 23, so, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. While you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never go out until you have paid the last penny. Now we'll explain the, the second half of this in just a moment. But I want you to see here what, what Jesus is saying is that relationships matter. He's now talking about the reflection of God in your life. What the heart looks like that's been transformed by the power of the gospel. When you've been transformed by the power of the gospel, it doesn't mean you're not ever going to be angry. It doesn't mean you're not going to be abusive with your words. It doesn't mean these things aren't going to come into your life. But when they do, you will want to reconcile. That's the, that is the, the reflection of God's character. It's not a perfect angry life. Okay? He's not saying, so never, ever, 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 ever be angry. He's saying, so when it happens, run. When it happens, don't run from God. Run to the one that you have wronged. And, and what he says here is, your offering to God, it is not as important as your broken relationship. 
And this whole expression here, just for sake of time, I want to deal with it in verse 25, when he says, do it quickly, lest you be thrown into jail. In that culture, what, what, what Jesus is saying is, in that culture, if you had a debt to someone, it's not like 21st century America. If you are in debt and you can't pay it, you know what happens to you? You're thrown in prison or in slavery until you pay it back. Question, if you're in prison, how are you going to pay it back? You're not. You have no means of income. So debtor's prison was a life sentence. What is Jesus saying? Don't delay. Don't delay. If the Spirit of God, he says here, if you're going to offer something and you remember, so you are, you are coming to worship and you remember somebody that has something against you, you ought to leave. You ought to leave. Well, people are going to think bad of me. You don't care. Because the internal is more important than external. You leave. You go find your brother and you make it right. See, relationships matter. They matter to God's children because they matter to him. So how are you doing in this anger area? Are you a murderer today? Well, good news. You're in company. A lot of company right here. This does not, this does not diminish anger. It doesn't diminish it. As a matter of fact, what happens when we talk about this, that the Spirit of God is in you, he, he convicts you. He convicts you in a greater way. And I say to you, run to Jesus and run to people. Run to people. If you've got, if you've got an angry past and you've got people that you've wronged, you should run to them and find them. Seek their forgiveness. Seek, you'll go to them as God came to us. He came into the world though the world didn't want him. He incarnated. He came into the world. You go into their worlds. Seek this forgiveness. Jesus starts here because I think this is the most common sin that we deal with. Angry. Abusive thoughts. Abusive words. To the place where they don't care about somebody's preciousness before the Lord. Let's pray to him. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be sensitive to you. God, I know that there are many people here that deal with this anger issue, Lord. May your spirit heal our heart. First of all, let us know that we're forgiven in you. It is Satan that comes and accuses, Lord. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, Lord, that redeemed man or woman will desire to make it right. So, Lord, prod us with, with names. If there's someone we need to go seek forgiveness from, Lord, I pray that you'd bring their mind to our name, their name to our mind right now, and that, that we would go to them in obedience to what Jesus said. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for your grace that forgives for your grace that chases us down, for your grace that knew that we were sinners, but yet you died for us. We praise you, Lord. We worship you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.